Thanks for tuning in to the Eccles Business Buzz Podcast. My name is Langcha Klingensmith, and today I have the honor of speaking with Chris Leocopoulos. Chris Leocopoulos grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, the oldest child of a Greek immigrant family. The first in her family to graduate from college, she obtained both undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Her career has encompassed human resources, general management, and leadership roles across a variety of industries and organizations, including retail, technology, academic, and financial services. She recently retired from her role as general manager of Fidelity Investments for the Utah region. Her involvement in the community reflects her passions around democracy, equality, and education, and has included co-founding the Salt Lake Film Society, and participating on and chairing boards at the Eccles School, the Film Society, and Equality Utah. In retirement, Chris is pursuing an unexpected passion for golf while indulging her traditional passions around learning new things, reading, traveling, hiking, and spending as much time as possible outdoors. Chris also participates in some management and leadership consulting volunteer activities, as well as board service with the Eccles Advisory Board. Chris and her spouse, Mona, live in the best neighborhood ever in Mill Creek, Utah. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Why, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. We are just so excited to have the opportunity to chat with you more on the topic of perseverance. Sure. I have to say it's probably one of my favorites. I actually think that my ability to persevere and be resilient, although I didn't know it at the time, But I actually think it became one of the big difference makers for me. Oh, that makes me so excited. You know, at the beginning of each season, as we go through and formulate our guest list, we brainstorm who could really speak very vibrantly on these different topics. And when perseverance was thrown out, it was hands down. Chris Leocopoulos has got to be on this season of the Eccles Business Buzz. So I was just thrilled that you were able to join us because you were a must-have. I appreciate that so much. And I feel a little overwhelmed by that expectation. I have to say, I got the opportunity to be part of, I'll call it, facilitating a leadership class this year at the Eccles School. It was during fall semester called Profiles in Leadership with Al Landon and Taylor Randall. And of course, those two have such amazing backgrounds and they've done this class for several years. And I've actually spoken in that class before. And, but this time I had the opportunity to hear all of the different visiting speakers. And I was blown away by their stories. And I feel a little bit like, yeah, I'm, I'm just Chris. <laughs> and I feel very lucky for everything that has come my way. <laughs> well, I think you are in good company then because you definitely <laughs> have a spot there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Let's just go ahead and kick things off. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your connection to the Eccles community. Yeah. My bio does mention that I was the first one in my family to attend college. So we have a really small family. My dad came over from Greece in 1956. His great aunt and uncle, or his aunt and uncle, my great aunt and uncle, were in Park City as part of the Park City mining boom. That's how they landed in Utah. And then my mom was born to immigrant parents down in Price, Utah and who were also part of the coal mining down in Price, Utah. So that's my lineage here in Utah. So we're recent immigrants. It all happened in the 20th century. So I'm very close to that immigrant past and the idea that as it is for every immigrant, the whole thing that drives them to leave every comfort they've ever known, to leave their families. My dad had to quit school in eighth grade. He was able here to get his GED, plus then go to a couple of years of community school, community college. But he didn't get to go further than that. My mom desperately wanted to go to college and was unable. In that immigrant family, my grandfather didn't believe that a girl should go to school. (laughs) I guess I carried a bit of that. I'm the firstborn. I'm the oldest child. So I was part of the Greek Orthodox community here in Salt Lake, which is actually a rather large and vibrant community. And virtually all of us 
were college bound. That was just, again, I think part of it's that closeness to your immigrant past. Because I think all of my friends, it was either their grandparents or great grandparents who came over. For some of them, it was actually their own parents. So how did I end up at the Eccles Business School? I graduated high school in 1980. So the only thing that our high school counselors told us to take was the ACT exam, basically, so you could get into the University of Utah or BYU and or the various colleges in Utah. So I and my pals, we were all set to go to the University of Utah. My first four years at BU were, and I had a ton of credits, right? When I graduated with my undergrad, you needed 183 credit hours. I had 280 or some crazy thing like that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's because I came in with AP credits, but I also decided to just study the sciences. I was going to go the medical route initially. And just as time went on, that became, in my mind, it became less and less feasible. I was putting myself through school. I was doing scholarships. I was working doing everything that I could to avoid debt. But also, I knew my parents couldn't afford to pay. And so I, uh, I always had it in my mind, I've got to do something where I can make money. That's my biggest thing. When I started making my own money, when I got my first job and started making three twenty-five an hour, which was minimum wage at the time, that literally was almost double what I knew my dad made at his company jobs while the family was young and growing. And so here I was, I looked at this paycheck for full time at three twenty-five an hour. And in my head, I literally said, gosh, this won't buy much. Like I recognized that it wasn't a lot of money. And then right away, I was like, oh man, and dad made almost less than half of this to raise us. And I, from then on, I was like, gosh, my parents did a really good job of just, we never felt poor. But really we were, again, money was always a conflict. It was always hard to come by. And my parents were just those people who could make more out of a penny than anybody I have ever known. So growing up, I had this thing. What an inspiring trait. (laughs) It really was. And I am my parents' kids, even though now I spend like crazy and because I made good money. (laughs) Now I actually, my dad is still alive and he'll come to the house and he'll ask, uh, what's always on his mind is, what did you pay for that? How much did that cost? And he's all worried, right? Because he's thinking, (laughs) I'm going to run out of money. It was no brainer that I would go to the University of Utah. But in my fourth year, I kept thinking, you know what? I was actually in the College of Nursing. That's what I had decided at the time because I knew I could get out with a bachelor's degree and still get a job as opposed to medical school, which again, I kept just thinking, "Uh, that's hard. I don't know how I can go through that and pay for it and not make any money all that time. So that was a driver of the decision. With nursing school, I found myself constantly thinking, I'm just going to get this degree and then I'll do something else, which I heard myself think that one day. And I was like, what am I thinking? It's, it's not an easy degree to get. And it prepares you for a specific career. And if I don't want that career, why am I doing it? So one winter morning, it was the first day of winter quarter or semester or whatever it was back then. I'm driving to school. And upper campus was a right turn to go to the medical facilities and the College of Nursing. Lower campus was everything else. Uh, Literally, I'm driving and I decide to go left. And that started it. I consider my graduate degree the time when I really joined the Eccles community because graduate school was totally different than undergrad school. I was a little older. I had taken three years between undergrad and graduate. I had my first really professional experience in being hired as a manager. I had developed some of my perspectives around what was important. And so I came back to school in the graduate program. It was a degree that sort of parallel tracked to the MBA at the time. It was a master's of human resource management. And I then ended up with a cohort that was fantastic. And I'm friends with or I've been colleagues with ever since that time. And I graduated from grad school. I can't, I think it was 1990, if I remember correctly. And I've gotten jobs because I knew those people or was in class with them, worked on projects with them, did an internship with them. Like from graduate school on, my jobs always came because somebody gave me a phone call and said, 
we have something open. I talked to my boss about you. I think you'd be a great fit. And that's how I got every single job, again, upon graduating from grad school. Wow. They say it's all about who you know. And that was a case for you. Yeah, which I would have never guessed. Being a first-time college goer, I always thought you have to do it all on your own. And that's how you're successful. And don't get me wrong, it is so much about both your commitment to just getting through it, as well as your commitment to excellence, your commitment to doing the work necessary to get through it. So I have been a hard worker, but when I finally figured out this is the way the world works, you create relationships. And that's actually, and your job, my job was to develop my reputation for excellent work, for being a good team member, for basically making it easy for people to say, hey, you know what? I heard about an opening and I think you'd be great for it. And I know so-and-so. If you'd like, I can give them a call. Like that's what kept happening. And I've tried to pay that back a lot to students at the school over the years who I just keep remembering that both scholarships got me through. And then this idea of you don't get there on your own alone. You actually get there because of circles of people and connections that are willing to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the importance of building those relationships and maintaining them, it's hard work to stay in contact with people, especially as everybody goes through life changes at different rates and Yes. That's just incredible. You mentioned it a little bit, but I'd love to hear more on what inspired you as a first-gen student to take that leap. So I knew as I was growing up because I saw my mom, she was a full-time mom and she needed to be because one of my brothers had some challenges. And so again, days without cell phones, my mom had to be by a phone and she had to be ready to go the minute the school called or she really took on the brunt of our family in general, like so many moms actually do. And But I saw her really struggle. And as she grew older, the struggle became even greater. She hated the fact that she did not make her own money, that she was dependent on my debt, and the fact that money was always a bit of conflict in our house. So early on, I determined that I wanted to make my own money because I wanted my own freedom and independence. I often say, you know what I think about life? I think life is this long road full of potholes and bumps, full of bumps in the road. But when your resources are really constrained, those bumps in the road can become major potholes that throw the tires off the car. I just knew that college was the thing. And it made it easier that my peer group knew they were going to college too. I wasn't standing out there on my own. Now, my parents were very supportive because that's what they hoped for is that I would go to college. But it's interesting that you say so often your family doesn't understand what it takes. I came upon this poem years ago. It's by Mary Oliver and it's called The Journey. And so I found this poem and there's a line in it that because the whole poem is about somebody breaking free to follow the inner voice, the their direction. But the people around them are nervous about that. They're upset about that, right? Because you're upsetting the equilibrium that everybody knows. And I think that's what can make it hard for parents of first-generation college goers. Because I would, when things, when we were in arguments, I would periodically have someone in the family say, oh, what are you too good for us now that you're in college or you graduated from college or whatever it is. And the Mary Oliver poem, when I read it and I read the essay, which talks about that, that others are so invested in us maintaining our status quo because it's part of their comfort zone. Not only is it part of our own, but whenever somebody decides to walk out there into an unknown that no one else has gone to and You can see any number of things. You go to college the first time. As a woman, you decide not to get married or you can't get married for years and years. In my case, because I was gay, which was also this wilderness that I was walking into that nobody understood. And it upset the comfort 
and just what everybody was used to. And so the line in the Mary Oliver poem is something like, they're grabbing at your ankles and wailing, mend my life, just trying to hold you there. And so I would say that was the challenge, actually, in continuing to persevere, is just believing in my own path and my own direction and those early values, that value around, I want to be independent, I want to be free. And I saw that sort of economic independence, financial independence was the real key to all of that. If you could offer a piece of advice to first-generation students, whether they're in the midst of college right now or getting ready to go into their first year, what piece of advice would you offer them? I would say try really hard to build your vision of why you want to be at college. So for me, I knew that financial independence was really what I was striving for, ultimately. And I valued education, it's, but I knew that without the actual degree that I wouldn't be able to achieve that long-term goal. And so the degree was an achievement, absolutely. And it was something that made everybody proud. But keeping a focus on why I was there to keep me through the tough times was really important. And I find that with a lot of first-gen students, I often ask them this question, what are your friends doing right now? And there's often such a draw and a pull to what we know and what we're comfortable with. And I actually think that may be one of the most difficult things that first-gen college-goers often face is what is their peer set doing? And if they don't have peers that are going college, the best thing you can do is get involved at school so that you're in it with people that are going through the same thing that you're going through. Oh, absolutely. I think that is... Part of the reason programs like Opportunity Scholars and First Ascent have been so successful because it just helps to build that community of peers when you might not have any in the beginning. Absolutely. And they have mentors then if it's Rich and Victoria, and I don't even remember all the people in that office, but that are so amazing and really recognize the challenge that these new college students, new in the biggest sense of the word, right? They're trailblazers for their families, really, and for their cultures very frequently. And I think it is brilliant what we've been able to do with Opportunity Scholar and First Ascent, all the programs that, and just the explosion of scholarships that we've seen since the probably mid-2000s. The, the Echo School, I, I just think... The Echo School is a rock star for everything that they have done. I would often tell stories about how I developed some of basically who I am and the significant life challenges that kind of taught me different lessons and got me to the place I am. And again, life is full of bumps in the road, right? I have a lot of stories about challenges. (laughs) (laughs) But I realized one of the things that I rarely ever talked about is one of the strongest mindsets you could ever have. And it's the idea that this too shall pass. Now, the truth is everything shall pass, right? Whether it's a great time you're having in college, you're going to graduate and move on. (laughs) Whether it's your worst semester ever that you've written. I literally had one of these where I had to write 16 papers, maybe even 20 in one. And I was doing all-nighter after all-nighter after all-nighter. And that was the semester I initially decided to say no to graduate school, that I was going to go. It was in undergrad school. It was one of my final semesters. And I remember having that card on my desk on my third all-nighter within a seven-day period. So I was just, I was exhausted. I was stressed. I was frazzled. Then I checked, no, I'm not going to attend next year. (laughs) (laughs) All those things, like (laughs) they compound. You're tired and then you're more stressed and it just, it starts to feel like you're never going to get on the other side of it. And every college student knows this. You've had the experience. And the unfortunate thing is, it's by far the hardest experience you're ever going to have. 
it's by far not the hardest experience you're ever going to have, right? College is just priming you in so many ways to deal with these stresses that will come, the challenges that will come, the bumps in the road that will come. So that idea, though, we think about it a lot in terms of when we're going through a, a bad stretch, a hard stretch, that, okay, this too shall pass. But it is the truth of our life, right? Everything has a time and a season, and it will be done at some point and something new opens up. It's particularly great, though, when you are going through a hard patch to remember this too shall pass. And often that, even that grounding helps you understand, oh, and what's one step that I could take right now to just make it a little better? Because I'm also a big believer in that. How do you get to the top of the mountain? One step at a time. You can't get there any other way. (laughs) Just one foot in front of the other. Can I share with you one of the biggest obstacles I've ever encountered in my life? I would love that. (laughs) Because it was perseverance. So I was thinking through this. The topic was perseverance. And I've had a number of big things. Being gay, finding myself. I knew that I was gay when I was 20 years old. And it wasn't because of anything. I just knew. I hadn't had a relationship or anything like that. I just knew that this was how I was made, how I was built. That would prove to be a challenge over time that I would work through. But really, oh, and then I would have, I had my own cancer diagnosis. I think this is my ninth year since that diagnosis and the treatment. So that was a big deal. But the biggest thing I incurred was when I lost my partner, Marcy, to her terminal cancer. And, you know, Marcy was the, I, it was such a big loss because it's always a big loss to lose the one you love, anyone you love. But I had waited for so long. It had taken so long to find her. (laughs) So I was in my mid, late thirties when I actually met her. And then A few months later, I had this really quiet realization that the thing my friends always told me, because I'd always ask them when they were getting married, I'd always ask, how do you know that you can fulfill that promise that you're making, right, for the rest of your life? And they would always say basically the same thing, which was, oh, you just know some things. So I would have this really quiet realization several months after I had met Marcy that, oh my gosh. (laughs) I just know I'm supposed to be here with her. And of course, what a relief that must have been after, you know, it's hard when somebody tells you, oh, you're just going to know, but waiting for that (laughs) feeling like, yeah, I didn't even believe it because it never happened. So it was a relief and it was this really joyous occasion. And of course, in my naivety, I believe that you just know, and my life now is set and we're (laughs) going to go forward and grow old together. And wow, I'm so glad because all this ambiguity was really hard all these years. And yeah, that's it. And so (laughs) within a couple of years, she would tell me one afternoon, my back really hurts and I don't know what it's from. Maybe I pulled something. She'd go to the doctor. She would end up going to the doctor three or four times in a year period of time with this increasing pain in her back. Long story short, she ultimately gets diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And they diagnosed it really late, finally. Over a year later, they decide to do some scans and x-rays and she ends up being diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. So this is two and a half years or so into this relationship that I thought would be forever and at least that would outlast me. And then within a couple of years, she was gone, uh, despite us putting up a very valiant fight because we didn't, she, she didn't want to lose her life. I didn't want to lose her. And we didn't want to lose the life we had together. And so it wasn't in the cards though. That was the event that literally rocked my world and shattered me. That grief shattered me. It also, as so many of those hard experiences, it is interesting because it seems like hard experiences, and maybe it's because you have to fight so much to get through them. You do have to persevere. (laughs) You have to keep going in the face of whatever difficulty, and you learn so much. I knew coming through that process and then going through all of that grief, which was a multi-year process, 
which, and really, it never leaves me. It's always there somewhere, but I've recovered so much because this happened now. I think we just passed her 16th year of being gone. And I remember in those early days, really, you know, sometimes it was as much as I could possibly do to just breathe and think, I got to just put one foot in front of the other. That's what I'm going to do. I also became very attuned, though, to this idea that there's no day but today. I was with her when she quit breathing. And that is a momentous time, especially the first time you witness it. And for many months and even years after that, and the reason I tell the story is often to remind myself of this, I would wake up and just think, you know, staring at the ceiling, I'm alive and my heart is beating. (laughs) And most importantly, I'm not doing a thing to control that, right? Your heart beats outside of your control. Your heart most often stops beating outside of your control. That's not what you have control over. What you have control over is, oh, I've awakened, I'm alive, and my heart is beating. And now my choice starts. My decision-making starts. How will this day help me or hinder me in terms of my long-term aspiration of where I'm going and who I want to be and the type of person I aspire to be. There are so many things that go, that factor into, will you get the right diagnosis? Will they be able to treat you? And in her case, the answer was no. In my case, I just couldn't have been more fortunate when I ultimately got cancer because I, they knew what I had and they had a treatment protocol for it and it didn't take a year to diagnose. I sit here today. But what you said about enjoying the moment and making sure you realize that you do have this time and making sure you take full advantage of that time, that's really critical. And something, again, you do learn because it, I, actually there's a really great, there's some great research that Brene Brown Uh, I love Brene Brown. I think some of the stuff she has done is just so brilliant because she's made breakthroughs, right? On stuff that we don't want to talk about, whether it's shame and vulnerability. In this case, she was doing some, I heard her talk about this. She was doing some research on resilience. So I'm thinking it might've been that book, Rising Strong, where she was writing about this. Yeah. But she said she actually talked with multiple people who had gone through a lot of things, but they hadn't been undone by them. They found their way back. And that concept of just realizing that this is a point in time, this is a point in time, and the worst of it particularly is going to pass. And I'll be able to see more clearly at some point. You bring your whole self wherever you go. There's no such thing as I've heard people say before, oh, I'm this type of person when I'm working, but I'm this type of person when I'm not. I just, I don't buy it. I think we're one whole person. And when we think we're being really different, we're probably kidding ourselves in some way. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting way to think of it. On those days where you were really struggling to persevere and, you know, you talked about just trying to put one foot in front of the other. How did you persevere through that? What strategies, what tools did you lean on through that time? Yeah. So again, and this is in part my way, like being able to be productive, short tangent story. When I got my cancer diagnosis and we found out I needed a course of chemotherapy, I remember my oncologist said, because I was worried, I had a big responsibility at work. And my one of my yeah. first questions was, can I keep working? Will I have to take a lot of time off? And he said, you know what we find? The people who can keep their lives as normal as possible are really the people who go through this the very best. Interesting. Yeah. But I, and I would have people tell me at work all the time, oh my gosh, I think had it been me, I'd just take four months off and not try to work. And I realized, oh, that wouldn't work for me because all I'd do is obsess about everything. <laughs> also, the worst thing you can do when things are really difficult is isolate yourself. 
it's why we're reading so much about mental health in the pandemic, right? People who truly got completely isolated because they were alone and they were in 500 and 600 square foot apartments and they couldn't get out and socialize with people. So that idea of isolating, which is super easy to do when you're in a really hard spot and you think that either no one is going to understand, no one wants to hear this, no one wants to be around me because I'm such a drag right now and who would want to be around me? That can be one of the most challenging things. And you got to fight. If your instinct is go down that rat hole, and mine is because I'm basically an introvert at heart, fight it. Because the very best thing you can do is find yourself with people. And when I was going through this tremendous grief, I basically told a number of my friends, I can't stand to be in my house. On the one hand, I don't want to ever leave it. But on the other hand, I can't stand being there right now. And so I just need some support. And they were just fantastic. And part of that was, I think, my honesty, which I'm a big fan of honesty as a tool, honest communication. It's, it can be very challenging, but especially in times like that, where you're on the brink of being fully overwhelmed and buried by challenges and difficulty. Being able to be honest with one person, more people, whatever it is, can really pay off for you and your ability to get through. Earlier, you described being gay as walking into a wilderness. And I think many people in minority groups, whatever that might look like for you, you fall into a few of those being Greek (laughs) and being female in finance industry, being non-Mormon in Utah, being gay. What has your experience been like in all those minority groups? Yeah, there are so many positives that came from my early experience of being uh, from this Greek immigrant family. If you've seen my Greek, my big fat Greek wedding, there's a lot about that show, I always say, was my life. Weird food for lunch, and my parents didn't make columns like the Acropolis at our house, but we had a real Greek household. (laughs) And I was in elementary school, I was one of three non Mormon kids in my classes. And it was the days where parents had no compunction about sending birthday invitations to the kids in the school class, because all the kids in the school class were the same kids in the primary class at the church. And that I wasn't part of that. And so there would be me and two other kids who wouldn't get birthday invitations. (laughs) And so though it was difficult, there were times when being so different really stood out. But for the most part, I always had a great group of friends. I always had a big group of Mormon friends because those were the majority in my elementary through high school experience. And then, of course, I became very involved in the Greek community. But I think that you can go through those experiences. Being gay was a real wilderness for me because I didn't have any friends who were gay. I didn't know anybody who was gay. And this is like 1981 or 82 when I'm having this realization that, wow, this is what I've experienced. This is why I'm so different when all the girls are talking about starting to date boys. And I'm just thinking, yeah, no. For a long time, I rationalized it. I was like, I'm just a really good girl and I'm going to wait until I'm married and all that stuff. And for a while, that worked until it didn't. And I had this realization. And for a long time, how I dealt with that was just compartmentalizing it. I never told a soul. I isolated myself in it for years. But then it wasn't very long after. So it took me like six or seven years to tell somebody. And it wasn't very long after that that I started to meet different people where I came to, again, I came to this realization where I was like, wow, if I weren't gay, I would have never met that person. One of my best friends in graduate school ended up being a gay guy. And we did not tell each other until after grad school, way after grad school. He was coming. Yeah, he was coming back to Salt Lake to visit. And he called me and he basically told me his story 
And I've often adopted the metaphor that he gave because I found it so powerful. He said to me, first of all, you mean enough to me that I want to tell you this thing about me because I want to hopefully keep you as a friend. But if you decide that you can't be my friend, then, you know, that's just something I'll have to deal with. And then he says, I'm just going to say it out loud and then we'll talk about it. And he says, I'm gay and I have a boyfriend and I'm coming back to Salt Lake and I want to see him and I want you to meet him. And so it takes me like five seconds of silence to go, oh, me too, but I don't have a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've so often reflected because that person is still in my life today and I count him among my most treasured friends. He knows so much about me and the entire path that I've been on. And I sometimes just realize, had I not been gay, we most likely would not have struck that friendship. And it's been one of the most important things in my life. So there are gifts everywhere. It was a wilderness and there were a lot of challenges walking that road. I've gotten to the point in my life where even though I've had a lot of different hard things happen, like everybody does. I've had so many amazing things. Speaking of maybe feeling like you didn't belong, did you always feel like you belonged as a female in the finance industry? I imagine it was really hard. Yeah, for the most part, I was always the only or one of only two or three women in a a major room, 20 people, 40 people, whatever. And I got a lot of feedback early on that as much as I could act like one of the guys, the better, because <laughs> that's what we all got in those days. If you could just be like a man, it would be a lot better. Which, again, if for working moms who are needing to put dinner on the table that night, that's nothing that you can talk about. That's nothing that can come into the equation. And it was a horrible thing and a horrible environment to put people in. I didn't even incur a lot of it. Again, because I didn't have kids, I actually think that women who did have kids had a much more difficult time because, again, you just weren't supposed to acknowledge that kind of thing. If you showed one moment of the way the the corporate environment looked at it was weakness in being a parent, (laughs) then you weren't going to be a go-to person. You weren't going to get the assignment that helped you demonstrate that you could get to the next level. and. There are all kinds of ways that holding people on the fringes and giving them subtle cues that they don't belong as they are. They need to change things. For women, there's all sorts of stuff. Your looks, the the inflection of your voice, your laugh, your whatever it is. (laughs) Everybody has an opinion on how you should be different in order to fit in. I think that today we're coming more and more to a time of really recognizing how ludicrous that all is. And there's empirical research that talks about the value of diversity. There's just sheer, I could sit in my chair and see these amazing things that were either happening or not happening because we had diversity or maybe we didn't have enough of it. So you see it all over. And I think particularly larger companies are willing to accept that now. What I would say to anyone in a marginalized group who finds themselves at the table, it's really easy for us all to feel like we're imposters, that somehow we really don't belong. And when you give in to that, you tend to become a little more withdrawn. You tend not to participate in the dialogue. You fear asking the wrong question. And none of that works on your behalf either, right? (laughs) So all those things you fear actually bring about the result that you don't want, which is you are set aside. And so I like to remind people, I spoke with the First Ascent scholars a couple of years ago, and I said, I want to leave you with one thing. You belong. You belong. A lot of times it feels like you may not belong, <laughs> right? Because you find yourselves in this wilderness. You find yourselves doing these things that no one has done before you. You find yourself being the minority person in the room, whatever that means. But believe in serendipity, for lack of a better term. You are there <laughs> for a reason. And so that says in and of itself, you belong there. Take some advantage of that. 
right? Don't shrink. Step into it. I spoke with Chad Anselmo. He is on a different episode of the podcast and he was talking about something similar and said, I wish everybody would look at others and instead of looking at them and thinking of how you're different from them, look at how we're the same. And I think that helps to create that sense of belonging because even if you feel like you're maybe on the outside trying to take a look at someone and they might be feeling the exact same way and you have no idea. And the power in being able to build community out of that. It's so, that's the power of empathy, right? That ability to remember before you jump to your ideological thing or your anger reaction or whatever it is that is prompting you to, to think negatively as your first thought in reaction to somebody. To, to be able to just take a moment and remember, oh, who knows what's going on for this person? Who knows? And it, it is so helpful. I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, I remember having a new team. It was 25 people. I had them come into a room within about three weeks of being with each other and just talk about, do a share around the table about the one or two things that they felt were most important in their lives that they would want each other to know. And funny, in the preparation for this, I had talked to a couple of the guys who were really excited for it. They, like, they totally saw this as an opportunity and they ran into my office one night and they said, hey, can we talk about God? If we think God is one of those most important things. And, and I was so glad they asked because that's why you're not supposed to talk religion and politics and all the hot stuff. And I said to them, oh, I love that question. Family was the single most common factor. We get halfway around the table and there was a guy who had worked for that company for over 18 years by the time I was in that chair. And people talked on the sidelines that he was probably gay, but no one knew for sure and he had never said. So he holds up a picture and it has three people in it. And he says, similar to all... Everyone who's gone so far, the most important thing in my life is my family. And he holds up this picture, and it's him, his male partner, and his grandmother. And he goes on to tell the story why his grandmother is in the picture and how she saved his life. And it had such an incredible impact. Again, he had found the common ground and stepped into it because it was his truth as well as everybody else's. And I got emails and calls that night from so many of the guys in that room, because it was 25 people, there were three women including me in it. And the guys were the ones, and I remember one specifically, he called me that night and he said, I drive home every night to Ogden. I commute from Ogden. And so I've got a 45 minute to an hour drive and I do it with the radio on to just let go of everything that's happened at work. And he said, I drove home in total silence, just reflecting on the idea that people trusted me so much to tell me the things that had come out around the table. But I think it's just a great example that when you do get people to talk about their most important things, so much of it overlaps. And it doesn't matter what religion or what political party you are. Your day-to-day -day life is so like so many other people's. Yeah. How did you see that impact that team positively? I imagine they all felt closer after that. Did you see that impact their work? Oh, yeah. New relationships were forged and people were more likely to go out of their little clip of the two or three people that they constantly engaged with. People would tell me, they would tell me years later, that was one of the most impactful experiences they ever had. Because once we shared something like that, something a little personal, we made that investment in each other. Then when staff meeting came and I needed a discussion, I needed a decision that I wanted some consensus on, people are willing to give their opinions and to hear others' opinions. Like, it just paid so many benefits to us. I would often repeat that activity because I really saw the power of 
teams at that point and teams that are really engaged and interested in each other and will look out for each other. That's where the power comes in. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so glad that you did. You had just such an incredible career at Fidelity and really your career as a whole with leadership opportunities and all the things. And you retired about five years ago. Mm -hmm. This will be my fourth year, actually. Okay. Okay. Four years ago. And before our interview, you talked about loving retirement. And (laughs) I don't blame you, but I'm curious to know what have you found to be fulfilling in retirement? Yeah. So first of all, when the opportunity came up, it was four years ago, and I had to make a decision really quickly because this was an early retirement offer that Fidelity Investments was making to its employees if you met certain criteria around years of service, there was an age requirement, etc. I met the age requirement just barely, which is then when I called Mona and said, oh my gosh, I just got this email. You have to be this age by June 30th. I turned on June 9th. That's my birthday. So I was like, I think it's a sign from the universe. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And then I grappled with it a little bit. Am I ready? Is it going to work for me? What if I don't have enough money? And a lot of times with retirement, people get a few years. It starts in your head. You're thinking, you know what? I think I'm coming down to my last three or five years. That's my goal to get out in three or five years. And for me, it was three months, basically, from getting the email to walking out the door. And so it was a really big deal. I loved the people I worked with. I loved that company. It gave me so much in my life, professionally and otherwise. I loved the job I was doing and the responsibility I had for these great people and serving amazing customers. So it wasn't that I was dissatisfied at all, but I decided ultimately, because I had gotten a lot of opportunities in Salt Lake City with Fidelity, just because of my family situation, I could never fully relocate. And we hadn't had COVID yet to demonstrate how well everybody could work from remotely. (laughs) Yeah. So there was still a real bias that you would show up physically to wherever you were working. So I was thinking about that. My mom was declining really significantly and I knew she needed more care. So I decided to go for it and take it. So the first, let's say, eight to nine months, my primary time was spent with my mom, which I got to tell you, I didn't expect to cherish it like I did. But I did cherish that time. And it was hard time for her, for me getting into that caregiving mode. And, you know, a person with advanced dementia, they literally get to the point where they really can't do anything for themselves. And my mom was always such a proud woman. I just hoped that she wasn't really aware of all these indignities that she had to suffer (laughs) because she couldn't do them herself. So that was a huge part of how I spent my time. I did take golf lessons right from the beginning because Mona absolutely loves more than anything in life to golf. And I thought, if we really want to spend time together and see each other ultimately in retirement, <laughs> I should take up golf. <laughs> and so I, and I found I love it. I really love it. So that's been so fun. I think the idea though that I have loved so much is being the master of my universe because I always had jobs where I, it really was a 24 seven responsibility and. I had a pager from almost, I think, the time I walked into Fidelity because we were a 24 by 7 operation here in Salt Lake. And and so you could get midnight and 3 a.m. calls that you'd need to deal with. So I just never had control over how I spent my time, my own calendar, etc. And I, I have taken the most pleasure from just knowing that to be true, that now I control that stuff <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Oh, that is so exciting. We're wrapping things up here. You mentioned it earlier that you love to read. And I love to ask all of our guests, what are you reading right now? What's one book that you (laughs) would recommend? I just think it's been so interesting to hear answers across the board. So I can't wait to hear yours. I'm going to tell you too. Because what I try to, I love to read fiction. I love to read novels, historical fiction, other fiction. I love... I I basically love to read anything and I love to learn. 
I try to keep my head into leadership and business. And so I will read some of those books as well still. So on the business side, I was thinking about this earlier. I still think Dare to Lead. It's a Brene Brown book. I think that is one of the most compelling books I have read in a long time. Oh gosh, as I say that, I'm thinking, oh, Untamed, that book by Glennon Doyle. Oh, that's a good one. Magnificent. And then I recently, in terms of fiction, came across a book called The Midnight Library. And this is on my list. I loved it. We listened to it. I had a friend recommend it to me. And then separately, Mona had a friend of hers recommend it. And we were driving, I think, down to St. George. And so we decided to get it on audio and listen to it together. And the friend who recommended it to me had said, I loved this so much. I read it. And then I decided to get the audio so the two of us could listen to it together, her partner and her. And we listened to it together and it was so compelling. And so I just thought the premise was fantastic. Matthew Haig is the author of that H-A-I-G. And I just listened to another book of his. So I actually like what he does. Chris, it has just been such a joy chatting with you today. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing all of your stories of perseverance in so many different facets of your life. And it has just been so inspiring to to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a platform to tell some of my stories. Because it reminds me, actually, in the telling that... I've been able to do some things through determination and will and perseverance that ended up being really great for my life. And it's good to remember those things. That also helps you through hard things, right? Remembering that you did other hard stuff. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And you made it. (laughs) And you'll make it again. You will make it again, rest assured. Yep. Thank you so much, Chris. You are welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe using your favorite podcast player and be sure to give us a rating and review. You could check out more of our content at eccles.link slash business buzz. Until next time, go Utes.